If you ever wonder how among Christians who, or people at least, who claim to follow the Bible, there can be so many different beliefs and teachings, then the words of our Lord, not just in these verses, but the section that we're going to spend our time in, in the coming weeks, um, are very helpful in thinking through that uh, reality, through that situation. Um, why some people with the Bible in their hands can think that Mary, uh, that's Mary, the mother of Jesus, becomes some kind of intercessor for Christians and is a way to get to God, or why some people with the same Bible in their hands think that it's the right thing to baptize children, um, or something a little milder, while some people with the Bible in their hands might think that having a tattoo is a sin. Uh, there might be a range of reasons for that. Usually, though, the most common thing is a misinterpretation of Scripture uh, that is the result of imposing our own traditions on the Word of God. Uh, rather than allowing the Scriptures to speak for themselves, uh, we bring, if you want, the baggage of our tradition, um, and we allow them to take priority over how we understand the Word of God, and then that leads to us placing the kind of constraints on people that, that, that one, distort the nature of God because people think that God is asking for all these things that he's not asking for, uh, and, and, and then distorts the kind of life that God wants us to live, a life that rejoices in his truth, but now becomes a life, of, a life that's burdensome. Um, and it's in this kind of scene, it's to this kind of scene that Jesus Christ arrives um, in these verses that we're looking at. It's in a scene where Jesus Christ is concerned about those who have started to, uh, the, the, the leaders of the day, the teachers of the day, who had a habit of um, misinterpreting God's word because they allowed tradition to control how they interpreted God's word. Uh, and Jesus Christ comes into, this kind, into that scene and he declares, which is the the implication of the things we've been looking at in the past few weeks, he declares that he alone uh, is the one who has the authority to give the final and full interpretation of the scriptures, the, the interpretation of, uh, of God's law. Uh, Jesus Christ comes into a context of Jew Jewish leaders who have placed burdens on the people because of how they have interpreted the scriptures, and he comes as the rest giver because he's the one who fulfills the scriptures, and, and he's the one who actually reveals what it truly means to live according to God's law, what it truly means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. That's something that Christ is going to do, at least spanning to the rest of this chapter, chapter five, as he, as he if you want, unfurls to us the, the very law of Christ. He unveils that. This is, he calls it, the, the law of Christ. This is um, how he shows us what it's like to live our lives for God. Um, and in doing so, though, Christ is also making something else clear. He's, he makes it very clear, does he not, that his kingdom is also a kingdom of righteousness. A kingdom, a righteousness, by the way, um, that supersedes, uh, a righteousness that trumps the righteousness of the tribe, the scribes and the Pharisees. So these bad interpreters of the law that we, we thought about last week, who thought they were righteous because they, they, they were obeying rules and they did the right things, Jesus Christ says, one, they, are, they don't understand the law because they don't understand that the law is about me and that I'm, I'm superior to the law. Um, but they also are not actually as righteous as they think they are. Uh, my, the righteousness of my kingdom is, is greater than the righteousness that they think they have. And these are things that Christ is going to demonstrate right through the end of this chapter. His superiority over the law. The fact that the law is pointing to him. What, is, what does it mean to live a life that pleases God? To live a righteous life? It means to live the Jesus life. To live like Jesus. Um, to live according to how God, Jesus Christ, instructs you. And if you do that, that's to pursue a life of perfect righteousness, actually. It's, there's no, it's not a, a denigrating, it's not a downgrading of righteousness. This is the greatest kind of righteousness. Um, and Christ is gonna demonstrate that to us in these next few sections. Now it's not, 
immediately apparent why our Lord chooses these particular, if you like, headings or issues to deal with? Why does he pick, for example, uh, you might say this, this, the issue of anger that we're going to look at this, this, this morning and the sixth commandment? Why does he pick the issue of, of, of lust after that, the seventh commandment? It's not all the way clear why he moves from, from this way uh, and why he chooses these particular uh, parts of, of, of the teachings of the, of the Old Testament. What is clear is that he, 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 he's using them to demonstrate this superiority of his kingdom. He's using them to demonstrate the nature of his kingdom, um, the nature of life in the kingdom, um, the, the way by which people might, be, might know that they actually belong to his kingdom. He's using those to, to demonstrate these. So in, 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 in thinking through um, our Lord's teaching on the law, uh, reminding ourselves of the nature of the life in Christ's kingdom, and in de- desiring to uh, be drawn to trust in him, to depend on him, we'll continue to think through these, uh, these, these, these laws, these particular sections. Now, it's, it's easy to divide them. You can easily see that our Lord deals with separate laws, even though the same principles are at work. But the, the distinction in the laws themselves are not, um, they, 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 they can hardly be missed. So it's not hard to see that verses 21 to 26 are the first case study for our Lord, if you want, are the first, um, the first commandment that, God cho- that Jesus Christ, the first law that Jesus Christ chooses to unfold. And it's a law um, on, it's how Jesus Christ treats the sin of anger. How does, how does life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ affect what we do with the um, the emotion that is anger with the desire that is anger. What does that look like? And, and how does Jesus Christ's interpretation of it, explanation of it, both show that he is superior to anything that the law, one, superior to anything that the, the, the Old Testament uh, people, sorry, the, the people understood of the Old Testament law. Um, is, he, he's a final superior interpreter. In, in a sense, in a way that's relevant to us, that actually he's superior to any other form of um, teaching, religious teaching, life teaching about how to deal with anger, right? So the words of Jesus Christ are spoken in a particular context, as I've said. Christ is speaking to, in, he's speaking in a Jewish context. He's speaking, speaking in a context where there are scribes and Pharisees and so on. He's speaking in a context to people who are familiar with the Old Testament. But even in our world today, where maybe people are not, are irreligious or people don't have a holy book or they don't have a Bible, even to our world today, the superiority that Christ demonstrates is one that says the world doesn't understand anger either, right? I'm the one who truly understands what it means to, um, I'm the one who truly understands what what the sin of anger is and the trouble with it, how to overcome it, how to, 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 to deal with it. And so people might go for anger management classes. I'm not gonna say that's a bad thing to do. Um, philosophers might philosophize on the roots of anger and how to use it uh, and it, what's bad or good about it and how to control it and how to manipulate it for your own good. Uh, and Christ says everything they present to you is going to be insufficient to really deal with this issue. Okay, it's going to be insufficient if you're not hearing, heeding the words of Christ. So uh, if you're, if you, if if as the sermon goes on this morning, now in in general, I don't expect us to be here this morning uh, separating ourselves from the, uh, the, the, the exhortation that's in the sermon. I don't expect you to be here this morning thinking that you are beyond the the, the, the conversation here around anger. Anger is not my thing. This is for that person over there. And next week when they bring up a different issue, maybe that applies to me, but this is not my sin. I don't expect that. Um, I don't expect that as I think through how we're going to exposit the, how Christ deals with anger here, as we explain how Christ deals with anger, I'd be shocked that anyone here would think it, it, it didn't apply to them. Um, but if you're in a sense, you, you feel the, the weight heavier than others might do, uh, you, you, you feel how the word is convicting you. One thing Christ is saying to you is, don't go to anyone else for how to deal with your anger. 
He, he has the word. Who else can you go to? He has the words of eternal life. They have words that might keep you going for the next day. They have words that might keep you perhaps uh, um, looking good in the eyes of the world. He has the words to prepare you for eternal life. Uh, he has the words to prepare you for the entrance into and the experience of the very kingdom of heaven, the very kingdom of God. So that's one thing Christ will show to us is his superiority over anyone that tries to tell you about what anger is, um, including the false teachers in, the day, in his day uh, or, or the Jewish leaders in his day who misunderstood the law. Um, uh, uh, and, um, yeah, Christ shows us that. Uh, and so, so when we look at this subject of, of, of anger, then when we look at how Christ deals them with anger, he unfolds this, there's, there's three, three things I wanted to draw your attention to. So the structure of the passage itself, Jesus Christ makes quite a clear statement about anger, right? And, you know, and it's, he, he makes a statement about, about anger, he, he makes a statement, and then he, he kind of, um, he illustrates that using um, two parables, right? Um, he, he, he makes this statement that he, he, he presents this statement that he, that he, he explains uh, and he, uh, he explains a little further and then there's two parables, two stories that are not disconnected. That's why we read from 21 to 26. They're not actually disconnected from what Christ has been saying before. And in, these, in this section, Christ is dealing entirely with the subject of, of the sin of anger. Right, and he, um, and we're going to read these two parables that, and so there's these two parables that basically explain and, and give us further, and, and then give us further application, if you want, of what, um, of what Jesus Christ is, is saying. They help us to apply it, um, and and to to just draw the main points out of that, at least for this morning. I'm going to point your attention to, I'm going to address three, three, three separate headings, three headings. Um, one, how Jesus Christ challenges, maybe even changes our understanding of the sin of anger. He certainly wants to change your understanding of the sin of anger, but at the very least, our Lord is challenging that, how we understand this sin. Um, secondly, how Christ challenges or changes our understanding of the seriousness of the sin of anger. Um, and none of these, obviously those two things are not entirely far from being disconnected, but I, I'm drawing your attention to a particular emphasis anyway. How Jesus Christ addresses the seriousness and how he challenges how we understand the seriousness of this sin of anger. And thirdly, um, how he challenges us to seek solution to that sin. Uh, how he challenges us to make sure that we are not uh, staying comfortable in that sin. He challenges us to, to, to seek the solution for this sin. So firstly, how does Jesus challenge our understanding uh, of the sin of anger? He says, I, I say to you, uh, he says, sorry, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, right, Jesus Christ contrasts his law now with the interpretation of the Old Testament. The people at that day had, had heard the, so Christ actually does quote directly from the Old Testament, does he not? So, you shall not murder is a direct quotation from Exodus 20 that we read earlier. And even when Christ says, whoever murders will be liable to judgment, it's reflective of how in the Old Testament, the death penalty was, the, was mandated. In a, in a unique way, actually, murder was, was dealt with. There was mandatory for judgment. So even before you get to the, uh, te the, the Ten Commandments, which is in Exodus, back in, so Exodus chapter 20, all the way back in Genesis and like chapter 9, God is already speaking to, I think it's chapter 9, speaking to Noah about how to deal with murder. And, you know, there's a unique way to deal with murder, right? The death penalty. Um, so uh, Jesus Christ is actually quoting from the law. He's saying, this is what the law says, and this is how it's, you've heard it explained. Uh, this is where you've heard it. This is how it's been understood. This is what's been emphasized from it. But I say to you, so, so Christ is about to challenge how God's law has been understood. He's about to apply it in a unique way, in a way that magnifies um, the righteousness of his kingdom, in a way that helps us to understand um, what this sin is. And what he says to us is um, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So you've heard it said that murder deserves judgment, like murder deserves you to be taken to court deserves you to face the death penalty. Jesus Christ says, actually, I'm telling you that anger deserves that. 
If you're angry with your brother, and then the other things, the, the, the insults that he goes on to address, I'll address it in the next heading. Those other things are manifestations of this sin of anger. But Christ basically says, your, your anger um, deserves the same punishment that, or, or think of your anger deserving the same punishment that a murderer deserves. At least the one thing that Jesus does then is um, he, he he, he, he tells us that we can, there's, there's something we can compare about the sin of anger with the sin of murder. There's something to compare there. Already, it's telling you that Jesus Christ asks us to take a serious view of this, but that's the second point I'm going to deal with. But initially, Jesus Christ challenges us by saying, is, is there a relationship between what I think is my, my natural disposition to be angry or, or, or when I get angry, is there, is there some kind of relationship to form between that and what a murderer does. And I think essentially what Jesus is doing there is he's telling us that in his kingdom, sin is never merely a matter of the outward act. Or, or you don't judge sin merely by its extremity. So murder is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a very different type of sin. You take someone's life physically. Um, that's what we think of when we think of murder. And, and so you, in those times, you couldn't actually take someone to court for maybe feeling like they wanted to kill you. You know, I really feel like you should, you know, I, I wish you were dead. You couldn't take someone to court for that. Only if they actually murdered someone was that, um, could you then take them to court. But Jesus Christ says, in my kingdom, it's, it's not just those actions that reveal, that reveal the kind of, a sin, a kind of sin or reveal a sinful heart that, needs to, that, that, can, that should face judgment. It's not just when you go all the way to do murder, it's even the promptings, is the, is the desires, it's the feelings that lie behind the action of murder. And so Jesus Christ says, this is a heart issue. We must never think, judge our anger merely by what comes out from it merely by the actions it leads to, so that we approve of ourselves when, say, for example, our anger didn't lead to murder, right? Our anger didn't lead to murder, so I, I approve of myself. Christ says, you don't do that. No, it's, 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 it's a heart issue. Uh, it's more than what's going on externally. It's, the, it's everything that attaches itself to, to anger. It's my hatred. It's, it's, it's the rudeness. It's the bitterness. It's the complaining. It's the impatience. It's the irritability, it's the broken relationships that are reflective of an angry heart. Those things are serious. They're evidence of a serious defect in my heart. Right? So, so my anger starts from inside. What am I feeling inside? Right? When I start being angry, when I'm angry towards people, when I act... Um, from a place of anger, whether I, I then demonstrate bitterness or whether I demonstrate whatever kind of malice I demonstrate, it's showing that my heart is seriously defective, right? It's, it's showing that there's a problem with my fellowship with God. And because, that's a, 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 because my anger is a breach of a relationship with God, it really reminds me uh, that I should, it reminds me of how, of how serious my, my sin is, but it reminds me of the unique nature of anger in the kingdom of God because it's first about how the state of my heart is pleasing God. Jesus Christ is going to apply this paradigm to all these other sins that we're going to focus on. The heart is what matters, where, where your heart is. So you can sin, the sins can start from the emotional life. Uh, the, the, the sins can start in the thought life, not necessarily in the most extreme of the actions. So, so Christ makes us take serious stock of all manifestations of anger. We're not gonna wait for the most extreme form. Even what you might think is a minor or small form has to be addressed. He takes us away from looking at the surface of our sin and looking at, to looking at what is underlying it. What is underlying my sin? Why am I reacting this way? Why am I acting angry, right? Not just to wait till when my, ang my anger necessarily causes damage. You know, my anger leads me to break something or break someone. But even the motions, the things that lead me there, I begin to realize my anger is a heart issue. 
I, I, I begin to realize I need to go deeper. Christ calls us to do that, to, to assess our sin from the place of our hearts. What is my, my, my irritable response? What is my impatience? What does it say? What, what is my angry responses to these challenges I have in life? What does it say about my relationship with God? What does it say about how I'm denying God? Right, our, our sins are never just in the vacuum. Our sins are always against God. Th- think of the things that you're actually denying about God at the times when you get angry for situations in your life. You know, anger is really often just that response to uh, people doing something that, does, that makes us, or something happening to us that, that we're not happy about. Uh, very often our, our, our angry responses to, um, to trials, our angry responses to disappointments. And, and when we do that and we think we are just acting towards a human um, instrument, we're just acting towards a person, we often forget the things we're denying about God. Very often our anger is um, a denial of God's sovereignty, right? We're, we're really angry at God allowing certain things to come our way. We're angry with God for being in control of his world. Why, why does he allow me to have to face this? And we act like it's an anger towards a person, but it's an anger towards God. Many times our anger is a, is a denial of God's sovereignty as lawgiver, right? I'm angry because I feel like it, and I don't care that God might say this is not an error, I should be angry, right? This person has let me down, and the only thing that will satisfy me is if I, if I respond angrily towards them. It doesn't matter that God calls me to be patient or gracious. When we're angry towards people, one of the things we're doing is just denying that God is, has a right to give us laws. Jesus Christ reminds us, God can legislate for your emotional life. That's the thing that people want to deny today. They say, well, well, I feel this way, so it must be right. But no, but, but God is sovereign enough to say, you should, this is not how you should feel. Uh, think of how we're denying his goodness as we get angry over the, the, the difficult situations in our life. How often are we angry because we're acting as though there's nothing to be thankful about? We're so consumed with this disappointment we face. We're so consumed with how this person failed us. And now I'm angry as though there's no, God hasn't been good. It's a denial of God's goodness. There's no goodness that can appease me. There's, no, there's not, nothing I can look at and say, you know what? I won't complain. I'll be grateful. You know, how, you know we do that, don't we? We often do that. We say, you know what? I don't have this. I don't have that. But actually, I've got life or I've got my health. When we, when, we, when we allow our anger to overtake us, one of the things we're saying is, God hasn't been good enough. You know, if he if was, if was, if was better to me than, I should, than, than he had been, I wouldn't be able to get this angry. Look how we deny his wisdom. How many times are we denying God's wisdom? When, he, when we get angry at the situations he brings our way, when, when we get angry at the, 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 the troubles he allows us to go through, we deny God's wisdom in being able to use our current situation to work all things together for our good. Very often we wouldn't blow up in anger if if we pause and thought, God is using this adversity for my prosperity. If we thought God is wise enough to know that this is exactly what I need to go through. But we get angry because we think, we deny his wisdom. We get angry because we think actually there's no sense in allowing that to happen. We're denying the wisdom of God. Think of how we deny his mercy uh, when our failure to recognize just how much we need his mercy, our failure to recognize just how much we have received his mercy on a daily basis is demonstrated in our failure to show mercy to others, right? Folks, we're so impatient with people, we're so bitter towards people, we're so malicious to pe- towards people, it can only be because we don't pause to think of how much we need God's mercy, of how much we need, of, of how much God was gracious to us when he allowed Jesus to take the rap for us, that we never have a space in our lives to take the rap for other people's failures. Just think of your patience, your impatience with people. Very often you're impatient with people because them letting you down, right, say someone is late to do something or someone is, is slow about doing something, gets you angry because that means you may have to take the blame from something else, right? If this person is late, now I'm gonna be late. When I get to this place where I'm late, I'm the one that's gonna get ordered, you know? I'm, I'm the one that's gonna have to take the rap. And we're in no position, we, we never say to ourselves, maybe I can demonstrate patience and just take the blame. 
We never say, but it's, it's strange that we should never say that to ourselves when we, every single day we rejoice in the fact that somebody took the blame for us, that somebody took the rap for me, that somebody was merciful to me. He showed me mercy and he took grief and we never have, a, we never have space to take grief from grief of criticism, grief of rebuke, the grief of a, of a little disappointment. We have no space for that. Look at what we're denying when we allow anger to be our default, when we allow anger to control us, when we live lives of anger, right? And Jesus Christ is saying there's no room for that, no room to tolerate anger in the Christian life, no, no room to live as though our emotions don't have to be subject to the ways of God. Look at how Christ um, shows this here. He says, you received the death penalty for murder, but verse 22, I say to you that if you're ever angry with your brother, he doesn't even discuss the reasoning. If you're ever angry with your brother, you deserve judgment as well. That's, that's something else. There's no room for anger in the Christian life. The Christian should never be a person who acts out of anger in a sinful way towards another person. Never. Whether that manifests itself in my impatience, in my bitterness, in my jealousy, in my slandering, Christ says this is not something that should be accepted in the life of the Christian. There's no room for that in the kingdom. No room for justifying our angry responses. Spending time trying to explain away why I felt that way. Why I kept on being so bitter. Why I acted so maliciously. Why I spoke so slanderously. No room for justifying those responses. No room for choosing to leave our innate angry responses unchanged. Someone goes around now embracing affirming the suggestion that what I am is an angry person. I'm a person of rage. I just have a bad temper. They know me, they know me, I'm, I'm temper K. They, they, they just embrace it. There's no room for that in the Christian life. No room for boasting in the fact that my, my natural instinctive responses to adversity, to disappointment, is to act from a place of hatred. There's no room for saying that. No room for saying that. Because a person that says that is refusing to put on the only thing Christians are allowed to put on, which is Christ. Are you going to put on Christ or are you going to put on your angry responses? And I'm saying this knowing that your angry responses sometimes almost seem beyond control. I'm saying this knowing that you learned your angry responses. Sometimes you see it in your, your parents, you know this is genetics. I'm saying that knowing that your angry responses were, were fostered in the place of maybe traumatic environments that taught you that that was the only way to respond to adversity, but not in the kingdom of God. There's no space for it. We don't embrace it. We don't approve of it. We don't rejoice in it. In my, in my feistiness, in my, in, my, in my bitterness, in my impatience. I don't rejoice, none of that. Now, now quickly, Christ is not here. I'm, I'm not saying that Jesus Christ here is denying the reality that there is a good anger. And I, I almost don't want to make this point because it's not a point that Jesus Christ addresses. Of course there's a good anger. Uh, there's a book by a, a Christian author. He's a counselor called uh, David Paulison, Paulison, and he, the book is called Good and angry, right? You, you, can be, you can be good, there's a good anger. And, and Paulison says, when anger is done right, it is a great good. It says, that's wrong, and acts to protect the innocent and helpless. It says, that's wrong, and energizes us to address real problems. God who is good and does good, expresses good anger for a good cause. Jesus gets good and angry in the service of mercy and peace. So yes, there is something as a good, there's a good anger. And neither is Jesus Christ saying that every, every manifestation of anger is just the same, right? So this is not Jesus saying that someone commits a murder in the church and you say, well, they killed someone. Okay, not in the church, right, it's strange. Not in the church, but say, we know someone that commits a murder. And you say, well, this is not, he committed a murder, but what's murder? It's just the anger, it's a sin of anger. And yesterday, when that brother was angry, we didn't report him to the police. We just, and so we're not gonna, no, that's not what Christ is saying. No, please, that's not, he's not saying that at all. He's not equating that. He's not saying that there's, there's no place for seeing that anger has different manifestations, right? That there, there can be worse forms of anger than others. 
What he is saying, though, and we must not, uh, we must not downplay it, is that all anger is sin, all sinful anger in that sense, is sin against God and is worthy of judgment before God. God doesn't approve any of it. So, so at best you'll be saying the murderer will get more judgment, but the person who lives their lives in bitterness will get judgment as well, and potentially they'll get hellfire. Don't forget, there'll be many murderers in glory. There'll be murderers in heaven. In fact, one of them would have written essentially a large part of this book. There'll be murderers in, the, in, 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 in glory. There'll be people who never dealt with their bitterness. There'll be people who never dealt with their, 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 their propensity to slander people. They never dealt with it. They, they never dealt with their impatience and they'll be in hell. That, that leads me on to the second point. Because Jesus Christ here is showing us the, the, the worrying relationship between our hearts when we respond in anger and the motions that lead people to commit murder. There's a worrying relationship there. And this is not lost in the New Testament. The, the Apostle John says in the third, third chapter of his first epistle that if, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. The seriousness of our sin. Christ challenges our understanding of sin. Secondly, he also challenges the seriousness of the sin. So if you think that everyone who commits a murder should be liable to judgment, which is fine, realize that in my kingdom, I'm saying every sin is so serious, sin is so serious, that also the person who is angry with his brother or who demonstrates that anger in abusive language, insulting their brother, so verses, uh, verse 22, who, who, who calls his brother fool, Everyone who calls his brother, uh, who insults his brother, calls his brother, in the Greek, um, it's something like an idiot. That person will be liable to judgment as well. And you see how Jesus Christ, so Jesus Christ escalates. He says, okay, when people commit murder, you expect them to, to go to court. But in my kingdom, anger is a sin. And that anger could lead you to go, should, in one sense, should be leading you to go to court. But, but as Christ closes there, it will lead you to go to hell. It leads you to go to hell because God will judge you. The point Christ is making is, yes, the, the courts of the land cannot judge bitterness. They can't judge impatience, but God can. And God will. The seriousness of sin. That Jesus Christ is not afraid to, to tell his people Think of anger as you would think of the sin of murder. Think of it. I have the same sense of depth about them. If you're like me, you may have traumatized yourself a number of times by watching these documentaries about serial killers. I've, I've stopped now because, I don't know, I'm getting too old, can't handle it, I don't sleep well, I can't go upstairs by myself when I, you know, this is, I'm too old for that. But you, you watch these guys and you, you, you know this, this is it's, it's horrific stuff. Like, what moves a person to, to do that, to take a life? Now, very often, of course, there's, there's significant um, uh, breakdown psychologically and so on. But, but sometimes, it's not even so much the case as you, you see just, just real just hatred festering. You, you, can, you can watch it. You can see where the bitterness started and where the wrong thoughts, thoughts started. And, and, and then it led before you know it, the jealousy and so on, it actually led to someone taking a life. Now, many of us say, I, would, I could never be in that position. Fine, whatever. The point is, Jesus Christ actually says, don't say that too fast. He says, don't, don't, don't say too quickly. I can't identify with someone who does that. There's nothing, not when you're such an angry person. Right, that's, that's what Christ says. And, and so already he's, 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 he's introducing us to the, the seriousness of the sin. If you call your brother a fool, you call your brother an idiot, you, you, are, you are worthy of, of judgment. Now, now, again, we should not be too legalistic in the way we understand that. This is Christ illustrating the point. He's not actually saying literally, every time you say someone is a fool, uh, um, it, it's a sin, right? There are some times that people do things 
and you have to say, friend, you are a fool. Like sometimes, sometimes that people do things that are actually idiotic, right? That's not the point. That's not, Christ is not denying that. Um, Jesus Christ himself calls people fools when it's appropriate. Um, but, but he's talking about, he's dealing with the heart issue. He's dealing with the words that come, that we say towards people because there's a hatred towards them. There's anger towards them. And so we're not afraid to, we're not afraid to, uh, to, to speak, to insult them, to, to speak in ways that would destroy them. And the two things that illustrate the seriousness of these sins are one, that they are, or, or, or that if you want, they're violations of the two great commandments. Christ says that if you insult your brother, you'll be liable to the judgment of hellfire. That is, God will judge you. So to, to live a life of anger, to, to live in anger, to, uh, to, to, to keep anger as our bosom sin is to sin against God, is to violate the commandment that says we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, right? With all our, our mind. But also, especially when you see the parables that we'll look at in closing, but also even just how Christ frames the commandment, whoever insults his brother, Jesus Christ is thinking about anger, particularly in how it manifests itself in disrupting relationships between people, how anger is at the root of broken relationships. This sin is serious because where someone is living in anger, they're gonna find that they have relationships that are broken. They're going to violate the second commandment which says love your neighbor as yourself. Follow peace with all men. Without this it's impossible to please God. And holiness without which it's impossible to please God. So, 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 so furthermore, the seriousness of this sin is illustrated by how God, Jesus Christ warns us, this sin leads to broken relationships. And if, you are, if you're basking in a sin that leads to men and women being estranged from each other, how can you claim to know the God who is all about reconciliation? And so, in our Lord's mind, at the root of this, the animosity that leads to many and irreconcilable relationship is this kind of spiteful, villainous anger that is at the heart of even the murderer. Jesus Christ says, you may not murder physically, but are you murdering, are you murdering your relationships? Are you a murderer because you constantly are saying things that separate the peace that should exist between two people? Right, um, anger breaks bonds. Uh, anger leads us to taking revenge on others. Anger makes us harm people physically, emotionally, verbally. Uh, look at the way Jesus Christ says anger has murdered some of our relationships. And if we do that, we'll see just how serious the sin is. And so the Apostle Paul can say later on in the book of Galatians, he's talking about those sins. He says that there's the, 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 the works of the flesh, the sins of the flesh. He says they're evident. We know them. And at one point he says there's hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger. And he closes by saying, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The seriousness of anger is that in this persistent, uncontrolled, unchallenged, unchanged form that it continues to exist in your life, it will be a sign that you are actually outside of the kingdom of God. If you continue to walk in anger, if anger continues to define your attitude in whatever way that manifests itself, it will be proof that you have never known the God of grace. And so you will have no part in the kingdom of God. That's the seriousness of anger. Not only that it destroys interpersonal relationships, but actually destroys your relationship with God. It's peacemakers who are called children of God. It's to be settled in your anger, to, to, to be happy to live as an angry person and still claim to be a Christian has to be a paradox because nobody who has seen how Jesus Christ bore the anger of God should ever want to see 
should ever want to live in an angry state again. No one who has seen what Christ did to purchase peace on our behalf should ever want to live in an animosity towards someone again. This is, this is what Jesus Christ is telling us, the cross does for us. It makes us people who are pursuing unity, peace with other people. If we're not doing so, the seriousness of the sin of anger is that it, it removes you from the kingdom. It disqualifies you from being part of the kingdom because ultimately it shows you've never been touched by that grace that deals with the sin of anger. And so let me close with the third heading and make some final applications. Christ challenges us to seek the solution to the sin of anger. So Jesus Christ gives these two parables that then illustrate the point he's making. Again, you realize that even though Jesus Christ is dealing with the sin of anger, he primarily has anger in the way that it affects interpersonal relationships, how he affects people to people. The, 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 the primary manifestation in Christ's mind of where you see your, your, your sinful anger manifesting itself is in how you treat others. Two, um, two, two parables, one addressing anger between two church members if you want, the other addressing anger between someone and your enemy. Either way, a life of anger is no way for a Christian to carry on doing their business whether they're dealing with their fellow Christians or they're dealing with people that are their enemies. So it's not an excuse that you don't know someone, you don't like them, that you can then live a life of anger towards them. Right, and in these two parables, Jesus Christ is showing the kind of attitude the Christian must have towards this sin of anger. In particular, in the first example where Christ talks about this person who is, you're about to make an offering before God. You, you, you've, you've traveled, perhaps you've traveled miles in this context, you've traveled miles to the temple, because not like you just do it outside your house. You've traveled miles to make this offering before God. You're about to make this offering before God, and then you realize, Jesus Christ says, that there is something, that there's a brother who is not happy with you. There's, there's, a, there's a person who you have a bad relationship with at the moment. And Jesus Christ says, you're better off forgetting, Forget carrying on with that, 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 that offering. You're better on stop, stopping that and going ahead to, to fix that relationship before you make your offering to God. Uh, John Stott, in a commentary on this passage, says you could, you, could, you could reproduce this for modern times. And you would say that if you are in church, in the middle of a service of worship, and you suddenly remember that your brother has a grievance against you, leave church at once and put it right. Do not wait till the service is ended. Seek out your brother, ask his, his forgiveness. First go, then come. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your worship to God. Now again, Christ is illustrating something, so you don't actually have to, you may not have to just leave now. You can, you can listen to the sermon to the end. But what Christ is saying is there's an urgency. If, you, if, you tru if we truly mean, if we truly believe what Jesus Christ says about anger and how it disrupts relationships, there should be an urgency to pursue reconciliation. There has to be an urgency. Um, we have to be doing everything to fix broken relationships. Uh, you, 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 you have to be making every effort. Don't, don't, don't put it to the side. Uh, so some of you this morning, the Lord is saying to you, I want you to prioritize that issue you have. I want you to prioritize that place where your anger is manifesting itself so that all that there is there is bitterness and darkness. Prioritize it. Get a hold of it. Don't hide it behind church service. Don't, don't, don't put it in the back of your mind because you have preaching to do. Don't put it in the back of your mind because you have to sing in the church. Don't put it in the back of your mind because you do media or because you're, 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 you're the one preparing the food at the church. No, no, it's, it's priority. So, so when you're serving the sandwiches or you're wherever you're serving and the person that comes to take the sandwich from you is someone that you actually are in a bitter relationship with, do you realize the urgency of the matter? There is such a contradiction there, God wants you to deal with it urgently. You don't push it over, you deal, deal with it there and then. And your motivation for that is you cannot worship God with a heart that is angry with your neighbor. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart if you are 
walking angrily towards the people around you. You can't do that. And so this anger manifesting itself in bitterness, in impatience, in slander towards other people is a sign that your relationship with God is broken. That's the big thing. And so there has to be urgent remedying of that. Jesus Christ says, my people don't sit on their anger. They go to God for grace. They do the awkward work. They do the difficult work. Sometimes rectifying solutions, uh, rectifying the the solution, the, the situation, sorry, that our anger has caused is stressful, it's painful, it's humbling, but you do it. You pursue it, you, you go to God for grace. You say, God, give me the grace to think right about this person. You say, God, give me the wisdom. You seek out folks to help you with the situation. You say, come and help us address this, but you don't walk in anger. There's an urgency to apply the grace of reconciliation to your everyday life, an urgency about it. Christ challenges us never to be at peace. You know, in the world, people are at peace with animosity. They have problems, they have issues with people, and they're just fine, they relax. That's calm, he's, he's, they, that's just my haters. That's fine, they're just my enemies, and they, just leave, and they keep on living life, not for the Christian. We're striving to not live in any animosity whatsoever because our pursuit of peace with our neighbor is evidence of the fact that we have experienced peace with God. Let me close by saying these two things um, in application. If, you've, if you hear the sermon and you realize just how much all of us are indicted by this, all of us are in trouble because of this in a sense, which one of us can really speak of living a life free of anger and its fruits? How many of us can expect to control almost those instinctive reactions where before we know it, we've said the wrong thing? And this is, a, this is an issue where God is saying even your emotions matter. Before you know it, you've felt the wrong thing. You, you may not have said it, but before you know it, you really have hated this person. How many, how many times do you pat ourselves on the back because this person made me angry, and in my, in my mind, I thought to myself, I'm going to, what I'm going to tell this person now, yeah? They're gonna, I'm going to tell them about themselves. Like, I'm really going to just lay it all out. And then you, you get a chance to breathe. Sometimes you're even just lucky. lucky. You're about to type. You know, your, your battery just went off. And then you, you, you breathe, and like, before you charge it and you get back to it, like a two hours later, you start to just see, like, what am I thinking here? Like, me saying that is only going to make the situation worse. Like, me saying this is only going to make this person hate me more. I'm only saying this from a place of anger. And then you, 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 you relax, and then you say something more gracious. Let's talk tomorrow. Um, I understand where you're coming from. And then you pat yourself on the back. What a mature Christian I am. But just think of Jesus Christ saying that those sinful motions are like the motions that begin the sin of murder. And all of us have to feel like we're convicted by this. The only way to respond to Jesus Christ's magnifying of his law of righteousness is wretched man that I am. To feel inability. How can I live like this, perfectly free from anger? We cannot. Jesus Christ tells us about his law. One reason is so that we can feel the need to rely on him. Say, I just see you're perfect and I'm not. I need the savior. I need him to cleanse me. So I don't want you to leave here just thinking I want to become a better person. I want you to leave here thinking, I want to put all my trust in Jesus. I want to depend on him. Because if those who live this way in anger deserve judgment, that's exactly what I deserve. The only thing that can save me now is the one who bears judgment for me, Jesus Christ. He never had uncontrollable anger. He was never impatient, foolishly impatient. He, he never did those things. And, but not just that, he, he did God's law perfectly so that he could bear the weight of our sin, cleanse us in his blood. But Jesus Christ is telling us about how seriously God takes sin. The only one who can deliver us is God himself and he has done so by providing the one who reconciles God to himself be reconciled in 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 Jesus Christ that the one thing to do to in response to this is oh that your sin might show you how deeply you need a savior how deeply I need Jesus to just make me right before God but a second thing to say is for those who trust in this Jesus you know the one who says I say to you and then goes on to instruct you not to live a life of anger. It's the same one, if you think of it, that says to Lazarus, come forth. His words really do have power. He has grace. 
If you listen to Jesus Christ, the lawgiver, as he instructs you, I say two things to you. First of all, trust him about how he defines life. He's the one, he, he's the one that knows what it means to live a fulfilled, a blessed life. Believe him. Jesus Christ is telling you that your anger is not a good thing. Listen to him. You might have ignored your friend who was saying the same thing to you yesterday. You may have ignored the signs you get that everything is breaking around me. Like, people don't really like me. Like, why, why do I have beef everywhere? You might have ignored those signs. Don't ignore the voice of Jesus who tells you anger is no way to live. You may be hell-bent. You, you may be committed to not speaking to that person again. You're really committed to keeping this bitterness. You're committed to not dealing with this. But I'm telling you, hear the voice of Jesus. He's the only one that speaks words that give life. In the end, you'll be so sad that you sowed to death. You will only reap corruption. It might feel great now. It might look fruitful and energetic now, but it's dying. Don't sow to that. Don't sow to the corruption. Hear the words of Christ. But more than just hearing him and hearing him give you instruction, realize Jesus really has power. When he tells you to obey a commandment, he, he can give you the grace to obey that commandment. It, it was, uh, I think it was Augustine who said, Lord, command what you will, but will what you command. And so let me say this to us, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ has called us to this lofty righteousness. But it's not one that we cannot taste and experience. It's one that he gives us the grace to enjoy. Now, we won't enjoy it perfectly, and it's not until we get to the other side that we'll, we'll be like him and free from anger. And what a day that will be. If God allows us to have memories of the kind of people we, we were in this world, how small we're going to feel that we lived. What are we going to think about ourselves when we're in glorified bodies that are incapable of responding in such sinful ways? Then, then we will truly know how much we owe, says one him. Only then will we truly know how false and full of sin we were. But... Jesus Christ does give you the grace for today. For those of us who trust in him, listen, Jesus gives you the grace to deal with those things, those deep-rooted issues that cause you to respond that way, that cause you to be bitter, that cause you to be cold, that, 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 that failing, that betrayal that causes you to be angry. Don't hear the preacher, but hear me say Jesus can guide you through it. He can lead you through it. He can take you through, and he'll be there with you. In the deeps, in the, he'll be there. He can hear you. He can understand you. He can give you grace as by his spirit, Christ is formed in you. Jesus Christ speaks to us, his people today. He has grace for us, grace for us to obey his law, grace for us to be like him. Amen.